What was the first thing you ever remember doing on the internet? Not porn. I mean... <laughs> I mean, if that was it, that's fine. Uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't pornography. However, there was... <laughs> there was a... Do you, do you remember the whitehouse.com, whitehouse.gov controversy? No. Whitehouse.gov is the uh, Real URL website. for the mm-hmm. White House. Whitehouse.com was a, was a pornography website. Oh. And many uh, a young, uh, political, up-and-coming, uh, politically motivated young people um, experienced a, a, maybe it was a good thing. I don't know. A rude awakening. An unintentional awakening. Yeah. <laughs> a spring awakening. <laughs> was that the first thing you typed into a browser? I, it was, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was spring that awakening. That is extremely nerdy. I was really looking, I was looking for the script. Oh. Yeah. It was Clinton era. Yeah, it was Clinton era. Well, it's kind of appropriate then, huh? Yeah, definitely. What about you? Grace, I'm so old that um, I was using the internet before it was the World Wide Web, I guess. That's amazing. My friends and I, <clears throat> there was a drop down in the UC library system where you could get into... I don't even know what it was called. It was like the backbone of the internet that academics used to mm-hmm. help each other with homework. But um, muds and mush- mushes were very popular. These were multi-user worlds that you programmed, and they were all text. And we would skip school and mud and mush all day. Oh my god, that's amazing! I, can't there, I don't know about that. Uh, well, I mean, it's just I'm just so nostalgic for it. Uh, I can't remember the first thing I looked up on the internet, but I do remember being extremely excited when my the lo- local library in my small town first got connected to the internet in like maybe '96 or '97. I was all about it. I would like write down URLs from magazines to go and look up later because you could only get it like a half hour of the internet at a time. For for me, the my early experiences with the internet and my experiences with AOL were synonymous. So we got a computer and got AOL and got online all at the same time. Mm. So I did not experience the analog internet age. Although there's a great book called The Book of Numbers by Joshua Cohen, which I read before this book, which talks about the early internet and um, like why it developed, where it came from. And it was, yeah, it was a tool for academics to share information and obviously for the military to communicate. Yeah, before that. Sure. For, right. To communicate in the event of nuclear war, which mm-hmm. I think is kind of awesome. Yeah, and and the book book of numbers is about search engines. And cool. the, the rise of search engines and the rise of the internet are kind of the same story because first the first search engine was actually a published list. Of, right. of URLs. The more like directories. It was a directory. Than search exactly. engines, yeah. Yahoo yeah. was a directory for a long time before it was a search yeah. engine. Which is really interesting. And then so they created, you know, early versions of uh, weak AI to scrub the the internet for the URL names instead. Because they couldn't keep up. They There wasn't enough paper to, to print all of the URLs, so they had to create methods of finding the websites that were all just being generated exponentially. So the Ask Jeeves could tell us which GeoCities page we were looking for. GeoCities page has, that's like the standard of like antique internet. Like one web 1.0. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. I, I mean, all of this is leading up to the fact we're talking about some early cyberpunk stuff today, some early internet, I mean, prescient kind of internet discussion. Um, <laughs> and with that said... 
Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We're a working library with more than 90,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantilelibrary.com. We always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today on the 11th story, actually, of the Mercantile Building, we're camping in, in out. John Faraday's office right now. We're John, camping yes. out we're in his in office. office. I'm rustling through his papers and reading all of his Ben Greenberg is rustling through uh, John's papers. He's a Mercantile board member, though, so he probably has that right. And he's also uh, principal of BS LLC boutique marketing firm. We've also got Cedric Rose, the illustrious librarian of the Mercantile Library. So he also is technically supposed to be in here. I, however, am not. My name is Grace Dobish, and I'm a uh, freelance journalist and member of the library. And today we're talking about Neuromancer by William Gibson. Um, And just so you haven't read the book in the past 30 years that it's been out, there will be spoilers discussed today. So proceed at your own discretion. So Neuromancer, had you guys read this before? This book was, for me, huge. When I was in high school, I pretty well worked my way through the entire oeuvre of classic sci- sci-fi. Like I was reading Asimov, Heinlein. Mm-hmm. And, honest, and to be perfectly honest, um, Neuromancer was the first book I ever interlibrary loaned, which was just opened up this whole world to me. Oh, because your I, local library didn't have it, have it. They didn't have it, and... Um, so I, I put in an order for this book. It arrives at the Forest Park Public Library. And um, it just kind of blew my mind. The style, I think you guys will agree, was it was a little different. It was full of drugs, sex, yeah. even, <laughs> even more sex than classic sci-fi. Um, and it really, I, to me, the style, the style alone makes this book last. It makes it worthwhile. I see it. I don't, I'm curious what you guys' reaction to the style when I reread it just for this podcast, it actually seemed a little dated to me, but also almost a bridge between um, pulp, the pulp style. You know, it opens up, yeah. the book opens in this bar. You know, it's almost like this sci-fi revisioning of mm-hmm. like 1950s noir. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's a futuristic version of a noir bar. I do think that uh, when I think of William Gibson, I don't so much think of him as a sci-fi author as I do as like a literary great because his his style is so strong and he's got such a way with words. But I do think you can tell that this is his first book, you know? Like yeah. you see the basis for all of his other books in this, but it, it's a little rough around the edges. I think it holds up well considering how old it is, but I do see it, it, he's, he's not yet like harnessed all of his power in this book, I think. Yeah, I, I thought it was difficult actually i thought it was the 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 fact that it was kind of in this tone and pacing that was not what you're used to in contemporary fiction what i'm used to reading contemporary fiction i found it difficult to get into and kind of i i I was rereading a lot because of what you said grace he's he's a master uh of with language i Mm -hmm. mean his sentences are, are ridiculous i mean the it's but what's interesting is he's both like painting these extremely vivid pictures, but 
I have no frame of reference. Like I have no, it's, it is Mm. world building at its best. Like, and I I don't really still, I just finished this book like 20 minutes ago. (laughs) I still really don't know what this world looks like, even though he's vividly painting this picture with, with words. And I'm just like trying to follow along and figure out what these things are. And I found myself a lot of times switching between the book and plot synopsis and looking up, you know, terms and, uh, which was the same when I was reading, uh, the Cohen book about, um, search engines. It's a lot of, a lot of real techno babble, techno jargon words that mean real things that he's repurposing, uh, into Mm -hmm. different contexts, Mm -hmm. which I found difficult, but also kind of fun to keep up with. I like that he doesn't, um, I, I'm, I'm reading a, uh, like a YA science fiction book right now. Um, which I don't even remember actually the title of, which doesn't bode well for the book. But I I really like the fact that William Gibson never panders to his audience. He just expects you to catch up and you catch up or you don't. And you can, you can get along uh, not understanding every single word and you eventually figure it out through context or you don't. Right. But I think that I, my, I mean, my first experience with William Gibson was his book Idoru, which I think was like recommended in Seventeen magazine or Sassy or something when it came out in like '95 ish, and I like saw the the little capsule and in, like inspired me enough to search it out at the nearest bookstore, and I probably reread it like I don't even know how many times over the course of high school and college, and that to me is. I mean, it, it's kind of like what this book is almost at. Like the world building in Idoru is to the point where I like I have pictures of every single thing in my head, and it it also draws in on a lot of these internet concepts that weren't really things yet, but he was writing about them. And it, I, I find it really fascinating because you, I mean, the way you guys are describing your experience of the book this visual world building because I find his style to be intensely visual Mm -hmm. for that to happen in the book that supposedly coined the term cyberspace as a visual representation of data. You do a lot of work in visualizing, you know, things, right? Mm -hmm. Right, Grace? Yeah. Um, So it's, it's, it's impossible. It's useless for me to just ask you right now, Ben, sort of what did you see? Because I know I saw something. I know people came to this book without, they came to it possibly having just seen the movie Tron, which came out the same year Burning Chrome, the short yeah. story that sort of preceded, which actually coined the term, came mm-hmm. out. But right. it leads me to this question that I can't really answer. Like, what what is everybody else seeing in their mind? And now, of course, we have this analog. We have this idea of virtual reality that we all share. Analog yeah. is not the right word. That, that was... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that, um, it, it's funny because... So, yeah, I also watch Blade Runner in trying to prepare myself for understanding this book, which gives you, I, you know, the, it's the same kind of textures, right? The uh, mid-century modern, post-apocalyptic, cyberpunk kind of thing. There's a, even a bar that he goes to in Blade Runner that kind of reminded me of the bar in Chiba City. And so I had that in my head, and there was there were, there's a lot of pyramids and floating islands and things in space. And I, and I'm thinking about the movie, the fifth element when they go to that, <laughs> that, uh, that planet where Flossed they're in just paradise. Flossed in paradise. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fifth element. It's oh, such a crappy movie. Hell yes. It's I, amazing. Yeah. Um, sh- brief <laughs> sideline. Have you been aware that SNL occasionally brings out 
Ruby Rod. No. Like, it, they've done it, like, two or three times in the past few seasons. Jay Farrow apparently has, like, a Ruby Rod costume, and he'll just, like, show up in random sketches, and it's amazing. That's I'm awesome. sure that hardly anybody gets the That's joke. A, I love, I freak out. Re- like, deep cut references like that. Do you know what... I have no Sanjay. idea what you're talking about. We're gonna right have now. to make you watch The Fifth Element, Bruce Willis sci-fi movie from like late '90s. It's so bad, oh, it's great. Yeah. Bruce, Bruce Willis. Willis plays a reluctant hero, down on his luck, who finds the savior of the universe, Mila yeah. Jovovich, of course. Right. Um, Wait, so you're saying it's exactly like this book? You have this hero down on his luck, yeah. drinking at a bar. <laughs> exactly. Basically, and actually. <laughs> except for in Fifth Element, isn't he? A, he's a taxi driver, right? Yeah, yeah. But he, oh, that, that former is so military, former True. military, current taxi driver. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's basically the same, story. The same plot. <laughs> it's Blade Runner. It's Fifth Element. It's all. Yeah. Yeah. I also had written down, um, I mean, there's so many, you can see so many influences on all the sci-fi movies and books that came out after this. I mean, The Matrix, obviously. The yeah. Matrix is pretty much, yeah, they took. Yeah. Yeah. They I probably waited for the option to expire so they didn't have to pay him and then <laughs> <read> the movie. <laughs> I even saw elements of like Twin Peaks, <laughs> you know, like the the mysterious elements to the book. I felt um I felt a lot of the noir yeah. Twin Peaks kind of stuff. That was big. Uh that w- that made it fun but also frustrating because as you said there's and something about it that feels dated and you know, maybe it's just, you know, you're so used to, I'm so used to, we're so used to stories being recycled over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. That it's like, okay, yeah, like, yeah, that corridor leads to the old man and the old man's dying and then she's kill, she's going to kill him. And then, like, you're sort of like, you know, just get to the point already in a way. I, I found <laughs> myself saying that a couple yeah. times in this book. <laughs> well, it was I a little frustrating. I think that... The world building that William Gibson does, like in in this book, which is it's part of a trilogy, isn't it? Kind yeah. of leads yeah. into Sprawl, some other Sprawl trilogy, trilogy right? Have, which I read, and this one I thought was the freshest, but maybe it was because I was coming to it completely mm. new. So I feel like he leaves out enough detail so that, I mean, we're all picturing like Tron, but I think that's because that is like the old timey version of cyberspace. Like I was trying not to picture that as I read this. And it, it's difficult to do. It's yeah. it's much, much more abstract. And I think some of his later books, like um, the Bridge Trilogy and um, the the Pattern Recognition, um, whatever trilogy that's part of, it gets a little bit more specific, but he still leaves enough to the imagination that, um, to me, it all seems very modern um, and very still futuristic, which is really hard to do. Like once, once futuristic sci-fi hits a certain age, like it's going to be dated. Right. But I I think his stuff holds up. I I totally agree because I mean, very early in the book, you have cases trying to fence this chip of ROM. And I was like, if my phone gets down to that much memory, I'm like, I have to clear out. Oh, right. Here's like, it's three megs. They were like, Oh, I read a Reddit (laughs) thread about the price of ROM when William Gibson was writing, which was like for that much ROM, it would, would have been like $535 or something like wow. that. So it actually would have been like a pretty decent, <laughs> which well, is really nerdy that I did that. But yeah, that <laughs> I was is, trying yeah. to understand the book, by the way, there's a huge Reddit community into the, as you should expect. About William uh, Gibson or about this book? Gibson, Neuromancer. Um, there have been like two or three attempts at adapting this into a film. And there are threads about who should play case, who should play Molly. Um, 
So that's worth checking out if you mm-hmm. have like 12 <laughs> hours of your life that you'd like to dedicate to that. Well, I <laughs> I was uh as I was getting towards the end and I was speed reading it like like you were. I finished yeah. it like maybe an an hour or two right. ago. At the towards the end, I kept on thinking of Malcolm or Malcolm as like the precursor Malcolm to on. as the precursor to Jar Jar Binks. Like, did anybody yeah, else feel that a little, a little bit. bit? Like, or, or the character in the Matrix, who the the brother Tank, who's like driving the ship. Like, that's what I kept picturing. It was like he's jacked in, and I'm pointing to my head right now. Podcast people, <laughs> uh, he's jacked in, and then someone else is driving. But he's also what was cool is like he's also flipping to Molly's perspective, and that was like that was like one of my favorite aspects of the book is when he's like he's in he's in the Matrix, but he's also able to flip into Molly's to see Molly's perspective and she's running around and then he's jacking out and talking to, to Malcolm and it's like, just like crazy trying to keep up with all of that. Yeah. I actually had a really hard time remembering when he was in the matrix versus in real life. I mean, he wasn't in real life that much. It, and that right? made more difficult by the fact that Not a lot. winter, uh, winter mute kept, uh, finding him in the matrix and then completely changing his visual surroundings mm-hmm. to a familiar memory and appearing as like Finn and telling him more, you know, moving the plot forward more. Mm-hmm. And what I feel I, my frustration came once I realized that like winter mute was both pulling the strings and was kind of like, like the, the prize I, I was, I was like, okay, like I, I need to get, I need to get through this. I need to figure this out, <laughs> which was both frustrating and I guess good. So I had completely <laughs> forgotten about the Rastas in space in my first <laughs> reading, which, was, which yeah. was totally bizarre. Although yeah. there was an earlier William Gibson short story, maybe it is Burning Chrome, where it's some guy in orbit smoking weed, which <laughs> says a lot about William Gibson, I think. But um, that's just a tangent. I'm curious. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the world building um, as far as this is this is a future much like our present where there is this abstract reality based on data where people can interact we also have as you were just talking speaking of ben um it's like sim stim technology where which can be used to sort of inhabit somebody else's sensorium which is actually very much a precursor to his most recent novel the peripheral like the peripheral is basically all about that type of technology and but then one having read it a second time and still feeling slightly confused. And I think that he, it's one of those books that sort of like deliberately disorients you. I mean, he Mm -hmm. definitely took a lot from William Burroughs, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm curious whether we could explain to one another our takes on the overall arc, because you have, sorry, this is not, this isn't a graduate class. I shouldn't have used the term arc, but (laughs) just explain the book to one another. Uh. So So we have Wintermute. But then we have this other AI. Yeah, Neuromancer. Yeah, what's up with that? One of them is <laughs> one of them is insane. One of them's not. Um, are both or it's two th- sides of the same AI. Like because because later on you realize you you are made aware that this is bigger than AI somehow. This is like some type of ubermensch yeah, of super intelligent an AI. Yeah. They make a reference to an AI in like Alpha Centauri Alpha or something Centauri, like that. Yeah. That they've <laughs> identified that Which, there are by other the way, AIs. is the plot of the movie Her. It's like the end of the Ooh. movie Her is the same thing. She's like, hey, I'm going to find <laughs> other beings like me. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> that just draws back to the he idea did. that all all science fiction in the last three years goes back to this book. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and it's funny because Case makes the same mistake. He's he keeps talking about Wintermute as he and the um the construct, which by the way was like one of my favorite characters. Polly McCoy, the construct, the the old cowboy. He had to go that was my favorite scene was when he and the moderns and Molly broke into SenseNet and stole um, the the data containing Polly McCoy's uh, memories, which which was he was like the greatest cowboy of all time. And just a little explanation. So this so when <laughs> when people when people die, they can be preserved as ROM constructs, which are the construct of their personality, and apparently used for continuing adventures as. This right, character which, was. which is you know back to Grace's point of you know this is the in influence of like so much sci-fi. Black Mirror, great show uh, on the BBC. You know they do these kind of like outer limits. Every episode's different, a different uh, tale, and one of them was about a, a woman whose husband dies, and it's in a sort of near future world, and all of his he has all of this data on. Uh, you know his social media and his uh, emails and and all of his conversations and texts. So sh so there's a program that downloads all of that, reads it, and, and creates a persona that she can interact with. And that's kind of the st I'll, I won't mm -hmm. give away the ending, but that's it's the same idea. Totally. You know, and 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 singularity and that whole and Kurzweil. You know, it's like all kind of connects back to this idea of you know who are we? What are we? What is it? What does it mean to be human yeah <laughs> and i think i mean i i definitely think of william gibson's works as prophetic but he uh very much dislikes that term um i actually got to see him speak uh a year and a half ago i was in san francisco while he happened to be on his book tour and he did a reading of the new book peripheral and he actually took questions which apparently he hardly ever does and um what was he like? I've because I've been obsessed with him my yeah, entire right? life. I'm not obsessed, <laughs> but I've been sort of interested in William Gibson my whole life. Oh yeah, you I've know, been a fan I since I was like, like thirteen. He fled the draft to Canada. Yeah. Obviously, he's spent his life taking drugs. Yeah, living in Van <laughs> lives in Vancouver now. And and I I really want to know what your reaction was. The first time I heard the Mercantile Library mentioned, I was in high school, in 1993. He came to the Mercantile Library. Oh I, no way! Yeah. Was oh, he the amazing. Nehoff speaker or he the was big, not. big speaker? They, did, that they year? didn't exist yet. But oh, interesting. So, That's amazing. So he, was he like dorky, quiet? Oh, you could definitely tell that he's a shy man. He's very tall. He has a very large head, like kind of Chris Ware-like in that aspect. He's got a very large head. Mm -hmm. um, he's really funny. Like the new book, um, he the passage he was reading from, like he was actually <laughs> cracking himself up at some points, which I thought was very charming. Um, and as he, uh, he took questions, I got to ask him a question, which was, you know, I wanted to know with his world building, like, how does he keep this stuff straight? Like, how does he go about creating a new world? And I know it's kind of gauche to like ask writers, like, what software do you use? Cause like you can use the best software in the world. If you don't have the ideas, like you're not going to become William Gibson if you use the right software or whatever. He doesn't use anything. No, he wrote this book on a typewriter. He I was like, I just think about it. And if I remember it the next day, then I know it's good. If I forget about it, I don't worry about it. Holy crap. But to do that across like 
three books in the Sprawl trilogy, and then so however, many other I mean, trilogies he's that's written. That's absolutely incredible. There, it's it's ridiculous. So I mean, the man is obviously a genius. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I I saw a taped interview of him from the nineteen. 80s or 90s and he definitely had kind of a hunter s thompson way of of speaking he was like a little bit like yeah like here's my idea you know what this book is really about like kind of almost hippie like i don't don't know if that's still his persona but (laughs) he's more just like kind of nervous and quiet yeah um I've i've always had the sense also that he's a bit of a writer's writer in that he you know this book was integral in starting this and creating the idea of cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. But he was good friends with Bruce Sterling, who went on to start Wired Magazine. And mm-hmm. Sterling's prose is nothing, it's just not as stylistically experimental as Gibson's. That's always interested me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he contributed to Wired quite a bit in the early years. There's some, um, if if you look on his website, I think there are some links to some of his early pieces. Like he went to like a RAM factory in China or something. And it's, yeah. It's just like reading one of his books, but it's nonfiction. It's pretty great. I think Ben's about to read from us. Well, read, I, read, uh, I mean, for, for, for anyone who's listening, who, who maybe they decided to listen to this without having read the book, I, I wanted to just, honestly, you can pick, you could pick a, a paragraph at random and just, here's one, just randomly. The trees were small, gnarled, and possibly old, the result of genetic engineering and chemical and chemical manipulation. Case would have been hard-pressed to distinguish a pine from an oak, but the street boy's sense of style told him that, they, that these were too cute, too entirely and definitively tree-like. Between the trees, on gentle and too cleverly irregular slopes of sweet green grass, the bright umbrellas shaded the hotel's guests from the, un, fr- from the unfaltering radiance of the Lado Ackeson sun. A burst of French from a nearby table caught his attention the golden children he'd seen gliding above river mist the evening before. Now he saw that their tans were uneven, a stencil effect produced by selective melanin boosting, multiple shades overlapping in rectilinear patterns, outlining and highlighting musculature. The girl's small hard breasts, one boy's wrist resting on the white enamel of the table, they looked to case like machines built for racing. They deserved decals, decals for their hairdressers the designers of their white cotton ducks, for the artisans who'd crafted their leather sandals sandals and simple jewelry. Beyond them, at another table, three Japanese wives in Hiroshima sackcloth awaited sarariman husbands, their oval faces covered with artificial bruises. It was, he knew, an extremely conservative style, one he'd seldom seen in Chiba. That's some serious compression. I mean, like, he gets so much... He's so dense. Yeah, it's amazing. It's wild, but it moves, (laughs) and it also... It's, it's both. You know, it's it's it sounds like poetry and it makes sense and it re and it paints the pictures. It's like, how do you do that? Like, you know, uh, you know, it's like that's that's the dream. Like that's what if you write, that's what you want to write like. Mm-hmm. That's why I want to write like I know. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> well, this podcast is over. Another another. Concept I really took away from this book when I first read it, though. I mean, everybody talks about the whole cyberspace thing, but Gibson's all of Gibson's worlds are really imbued with this sense of like how corporatization, corporations are like are the the new entity. There are these corporate arcologies, whatever the hell an arcology is. But essentially, we were moved beyond governments. You know, it's I always took a, took away mm, the sense mm-hmm. of that 
these corporate corporate entities, commercial entities, yes, but the, there was almost this new level of culture. And he does it with subcultures too. These are the entities that sort of control the world. I mean, that's actually mm -hmm. one of the things I've always loved about his books. Like the Panther Moderns are totally scary, if dated also. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't quite figure out what the Panther Moderns were aside from a, a gang in jumpsuits. They're, I mean, like I descendants of scientists. No, I think it was just it's a anarchist youth techno fetishist youth culture essentially. Mm -hmm. They were committed to violence. They're wearing these skin tight suits that change colors to match their surroundings. They're into surgical modifications that make them look like ferocious animals. But um, and I think the really telling scene in the book is that where they are accomplices to the break-in where they um, liberate this ROM construct of this internet cowboy who's going to help them out down the road. And they start this riot uh, partially by um, strobing, I think, all these screens to create ep epilepsy. Mm -hmm. yeah. And all these people die in the riot. Yeah. But mm -hmm. they don't they don't care at all. And it's sort of, I, I found, I do, I did find that sort of prophetic. I don't know. I mean, again, yeah. it is dated. And the, the prose is beautiful at the same time, something from an earlier time. The version of the book that I read, that I read that edition, the one in front of you, Ben, first. The afterword was written by a contemporary of Gibson's who was also who also grew up in the Appalachians. And hmm. he makes the argument that a lot of Gibson's world comes from the old south in a in a way, which I thought was completely implausible until I read it. Huh. You guys can I've never read that before. Well, I look up the name of the writer. Interesting. Yeah, that... I uh, haven't encountered that. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I guess the... the I don't know a lot about this. I'm, I'm way out of my uh, comfort zone here. But, I mean, you're talking about a world of, of spirits, of, you know, a, a religious, deeply religious world of demons. And that whole... There is that, that you know, demon... The, the idea of hell and demons come up a lot in this book actually mm -hmm. uh especially you know the whole flatlining thing he's like and and malcolm is like you're playing with the dark stuff man yeah there's mm -hmm. a lot of odd sp and also the ending where it's you know a true name um is it actually in the book or was it something else that i read where like you can't call it a demon unless you know its name mm. yeah and that was and winter mute was couldn't use the word that right. uh, uh th and that's what i was just referring to uh, is the afterword by Jack Womack called Some Dark Holler in the edition that we have in the in the online edition of Neuromancer in the Mercantile Library's Overdrive collection, mm. if anybody's interested. Nice plug. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things I noticed about William Gibson's books, and maybe it's why I, I love them so much and felt a connection to them when I was growing up, was that he always has really strong female characters. I mean, often, if they're not the main character, and a lot of his main characters are strong women... It's a ancillary character, like um, Molly in this book. Um, she doesn't play as big of a role as I kind of remembered, but she's definitely memorable. And I feel like she became, out beyond the book, almost another archetype. Like, did you guys ever see Eon Flux? It was oh, I remember I know, it, the I cartoon on MTV. Now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah. Um, was did we decide whether or not Wintermute was what the sex of Wintermute was? Oh, I assumed I've it was a boy, but did you? I okay, no I did too, that. just because it it kept appearing to um, Case as a man, but 
I don't know. It's it's a good question. I, I almost felt Wintermute was female, in which case it would be another strong female character, but maybe I'm or maybe it's a computer. So it's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Right. It doesn't actually have a gender. And that was the word at the end, right? This would make a great master's thesis. Gender identity yeah. in neuroscience. Oh my god, yeah. It really would. Great one up for grabs. Yeah. Like the, the a true name, three syllables at the end. They don't actually reveal it. But it's Wintermute, right? I don't know. <laughs> Can someone call William Gibson real quick? Does anybody have his cell phone? I don't. Awesome. I <sighs> think I am friends totally with him on Twitter. I'm just kidding. I'm he's actually really great on twiz on on Twitter. Oh, I didn't even know if he's on Twitter. No, he's he's. I I'm always a little bit skeptical about writers who are on Twitter a lot because I'm like, how in the world do you actually manage to write if you're on Twitter so much? Like Susan Orlean, she's on Twitter all the time, and William Gibson too. He's he's pretty fun to follow. Isn't Joan Didion really weird on Twitter? <laughs> I don't know. I heard like she's. It might not even be her, but she like occasionally tweets like really controversial, nonsensical things. That sounds good. Yeah, maybe that's a good podcast episode. Just like reading tweets. And oh my gosh, t- literary Twitter. Just notes to yourselves from wh- when you're even more famous writers than you are now. Hire somebody. Just just yeah. Take it from me, even though I know nothing about. It, hire somebody to do quirky stuff for you <laughs> on Twitter while you're busy cranking it out. Is that what you do, Cedric? No, I farm no. that out. Yeah, I, I should probably think about that. <laughs> You're your own Find somebody quirky yeah. tweeter. Well, yeah. another probably 18, 24 months, it'll only be Snapchat anyways. So, And that's like ephemeral and stuff mm-hmm. for, the, for the older folks in the crowd here like myself. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, what, what, what do you think would happen if, uh, maybe this is a question for the Artificial Intelligence Podcast, which is coming up, by the way. Uh, as soon you, as we finish it, yeah. Yeah, I know. I have to. It's a... It's a beast. It's it's a beast um, of a book, but it's going to be interesting. I mean, what if if suddenly like our tweets and our tw- our Twitter feeds came alive and started speaking back to us? You know, what 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 would they say? Would it be like Polly McCoy? Would it be sort of would it be able to recognize that what what it is? Yeah, I think like mine would be a lot of animated gifs that I retweeted. I think mine would mostly like my my pinned Twitter post is is just this animated GIF of Fiona Apple at like the '98 MTV Awards, um, <laughs> when she's like, "This world is bullshit." Like that's just a loop, and so I think that actually that would just be yes. my my Twitter AI would just be Fiona Apple saying, "This is bullshit for eternity." I mean, that happened to John Ronson. Uh, we discussed yes. on this podcast how he had to track down the people who had created the artificial intelligent artificially intelligent John Ronson who was tweeting sanctimonious uh, dribble basically right. like re- restaurant reviews that sort of thing <laughs> think I'm gonna go <laughs> home and down. cook myself some celery egg. that is a hashtag actual- foodie <laughs> wow you do a great Welsh accent I thank you <laughs> I do also love um I mean weird twitter like are you guys familiar Yo, with weird the twitter which weird I twitter learned about from fantastic. the podcast reply all Oh, right on. Yeah, so weird Twitter is just a subculture of fake accounts, bots, people just doing weird stuff, and it's usually meant in jest, but people off people then sometimes take it seriously, and that makes it even funnier. I mean, like, horse e-books is a great example of weird Twitter. Like, it was this like, bot that someone made to 
like tweet snippets of random books and then occasionally link to this horse ebooks website based in Russia. And I guess it was an attempt at SEO gaming or trying to make a social media presence that required no human interaction, um, actual intervention. But um, it ended up being, <laughs> I mean, it was really funny sometimes because it, the, the snippets were just out of context and you could read into it, like whatever you wanted. And there's another uh, bot right now on Twitter that, um, grabs screenshots from various webcams around the world that are open and just does a screenshot with like a random word and sometimes the letters are blacked out and it's super spooky but mm. it's all just automated yeah and and these are things that we project our own ideas onto you know like yeah. and that's a i mean that's a lot of that's neuromancer kind of coming to life in a way in small ways this this book is really happening now. I mean, mm -hmm. it, not not to the to the scope uh, of Neuromancer, but yeah, Oculus Rift creating these artificial worlds that are so lifelike. I mean, it's all it's. I mean, it's essentially all coming Siri true. replying to us when Absolutely. we need to ask her a question. So, do you guys think it's possible? Do you th first of all, do you guys feel that AI is possible, and do you think that there there could be a ghost in the machine, essentially? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, definitely think AI is possible. I think, I think we have it now. We just have, uh, we have weak AI and there's strong mm -hmm. AI. I mean, it's this book that we're reading for another podcast, but what's the book? Nick the Bostrom's, uh, what is it called? Nick Bostrom's intelli intelligence methods and modes or something. It sounds like a right, textbook. Right. It reads like a textbook. It is kind of, it is used as a textbook and like some robotics programs. Um, it's yeah. denser than that ice surrounding the corporate. Yes. What was the question? Is AI real? Oh, is it real? Is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely. it's real. It's just not perfect yet. Well, it goes back to the philosophical question. Philosophical question of uh, what is it like to be a bat or a dog? Will we ever know? No, probably not, because we can't inhabit the body and mind of a bat or a dog. So if we were able to create a computer that was intelligent, I don't think we'd really know except for based on behavior, which is what the Turing test is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that some of the police in here are called the Turing. Turing police. Yeah. yeah, which is totally Blade Runner. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, was, uh, did Blade Runner did, uh, do androids dream electric sheep? Come before Neuromancer. It oh, did. That's a good it? question. We're using well, our phones to Google it. Yeah, right yeah, now. Well, I think I think Blade Runner is based on this story by Phil K. Dick. Sorry, yes, 1968. What? Wow. See. Yeah. All right. Horse Guys, we screwed up. Uh, <laughs> Neuromancer's bullshit. Well, well, I have to say, I also yeah. I, I like I like Googled the whole cyberspace thing before this podcast, and on Wikipedia, I guess the term was first used in art. And it was art that had to do with abstractions of ideas, I think. And I know William Gibson's sort of always been yeah. peripherally involved in the art world. So I don't know if he maybe picked up the idea from there. Mm -hmm. um, you but know, he's the first c person credited with using it in text in 1982. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, this is a total tangent. But since I think Chris was just giving us the high sign to wrap it up. And I've wanted to know this since you asked us earlier what the first thing we searched was. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, before this podcast, you were talking about your involvement w on a uh, with a 
Radiohead message board, I mm-hmm. believe. I'm, I'm yeah. just kind of curious, Grace, how you came came to, d- to discover that and to become yeah. part of this online community that so enriched your life. Yeah. Um, the radio, the official Radiohead.com message board was in my life from September 1999 up until yesterday. They actually finally shut it down. I wasn't a regular poster anymore, but I met so many people on there. Um, people who I'm still friends with to this day and the board spawned many relationships, marriages, children, even. And it's this complete, it was, oh, I have to use past tense now. It was this um, very web 1.0 message board system. Is that, a, is that a teardrop, Grace? I think you're getting a little weepy <laughs> there. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. It's been an emotional week. Um, the, <laughs> the board only had 15 pages of 30 posts each. And then it would just drop off and there was no archive, no cache. And um, so the only memories that we have of this board are what we have with each other. And back when back when the board turned 15, a year and a half ago, I started a Facebook group and brought together like all, like almost 200 people who were like members of this board, like back in its heyday. And um, it. I think I came to it from a different Radiohead message board, maybe on like allmusic.com or something, something like that. And I, at the time I didn't actually own any Radiohead albums. I just, ha- I just seen the videos and I thought that these were my people and they were my people. That's amazing. So that's how I, that's how I ended up on it. Um, and was on it a lot between the ages of uh, 19 and about 22, a lot. Um, but yeah, it, so, so it, this was your cyberspace essentially, the Radiohead. <laughs> Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. And it was kind of um, more like IRC than like anything like Facebook. I mean, it, it was purely text-based, no hyperlinks, you know. Um, but yeah, um, so I've been thinking a lot about the old internet today, and and reading Neuromancer was a lovely accompaniment to to this part of my life shutting down. Yeah. So on that somber note, I'm going to um, wrap it up with a quick round of book recommendations from the group today. So what are you reading now or what would you recommend along the same vein, perhaps? I'll go first just because I already mentioned it. Joshua Cohen's Book of Numbers. It's it's about it's a fictional account of it, it's really a, it's a mystery and kind of an intrigue novel that's uh, that's about a down as luck uh, writer who is hired to ghostwrite um, the memoir of the sort of fictional founder of a Google slash Apple type company. And it's really incredible. A lot of history of the internet, history of search engines, um, a little bit of, even a little bit of cyberpunk in there. Um, couldn't recommend it more. Mm, nice. What about you, Cedric? Grace, I am um, finishing up The Orphan Master's Son by uh, Adam Johnson. I believe that's the one that won the Pulitzer. Um, oddly, there are some similarities. Um, it is set in North Korea. Um, it is mm. just one of those groundbreaking, one-of-a-kind books. He really, this his world, this world, I think, is articulated through the author's um, research visiting North Korea. I'm really looking forward to discussing that one on the 12th story. Mm-hmm. I'm currently reading um, Little Brother by Cory Doctorov, and it's quite similar to to this. It's very much in the same vein, although it, it reads a bit more like a YA novel. It takes time to explain a lot of things that, I mean, feel just a little 
um, stumbling. But he, he's Canadian. Like, wait, William Gibbs is not actually Canadian, is he? But, but he's Corey been there Dr. for long Dr. enough. I think he counts as a Canadian at this point. Yeah, also Canadian. So, um, <laughs> so I recommend that maybe if you're into like some YA light reading. Um, but thank you for joining us today on the twelfth story from the eleventh story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends to tweet at us at Mercantile Lib. And today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Cedric and Ben. The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantilelibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week.